Good morning. Welcome to your North Carolina Court of Appeals. My name is Chris Dill, and I'll be presiding today. To my right is Judge John Tyson. To my left is Judge John Aaron Wood. And, and Delana McKessie is our clerk today, and Richard Rumar is our marshal. So thank you all for being here. We have one case on the calendar. It's Eastwood Construction versus Waxhaw Developers and Waxhaw LLC. And if the appellant is ready, you can proceed. And just let me know if you want to uh, reserve any time. Rebuttal. So you can go ahead and proceed. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. I'm Stephen Cox, and along with my partner, Matt Sawcheck, I represent the appellates in this case, Waxhaw Developers LLC and Waxhaw LLC. We'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, please. Thank you. Your Honors, this case arises from a real estate dispute over 58 acres in Union County, North Carolina, owned by my clients. In 2018, they were looking to transform that property into a residential subdivision. They were prepared to install the streets, get all the zoning and entitlement with county authorities, and subdivide the property into residential lots. But they were looking for a residential home builder to purchase the property and put houses on those lots. After a series of negotiations with the appellee in this case, Eastwood Construction, in June of 2018, Eastwood presented Waxhaw with a document entitled Contract to Purchase Real Estate that had been signed by Mike Conley, an executive of Eastwood. Within a few weeks, my client's representatives from Waxhaw had also signed that document. So as of July 16, 2018, we have a document entitled Contract to Purchase Real Estate signed by both Eastwood and Waxhaw. But the second paragraph of that document said that it would cease to become effective and would terminate if it were not signed within 30 days by the owner of Eastwood, Mr. Joe Stewart, or his son Clark. That second paragraph was mirrored and reinforced in section 33 of the contract, which says in all capital letters, notwithstanding anything in this contract to the contrary, this shall not become a valid and enforceable obligation of Eastwood unless and until it is signed by Joe or Clark Stewart within 30 days. The trial court found, and we do not dispute, that within 30 days, Clark Stewart signed the contract. But it's likewise undisputed that communication of that signature was not made to my client until two years later in July 2020. So the question Did your client ask for that um, to be given to them before that time? There was testimony that they did, but I believe the trial court found that they did not. And you're bound by that, is that correct? I do not know. No, sir, Your Honor, because I believe under North Carolina law, it's not just what I believe. But you're bound by the trial court's finding. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So the question for this court is, in the light of that evidence and in light of the document, the unambiguous terms of the document, is there a valid, enforceable, and binding contract? We say no for the reasons cited in our brief. In particular, North Carolina law demands two things of a party who seeks to be bound to a contract. Number one, it must unqualifiedly accept the contract, not with reservation, unqualified acceptance. And number two, that acceptance must be communicated. And even if Mr. Clark's signature, Mr. Stewart's signature, was an unqualified acceptance on August 10th, undisputed that that was not communicated to my client until two years later under the Normeal case, also the Howell case and the other materials we've cited, 
secret assent is no assent at all. Well, can't you assent by just your actions, by perhaps turning over the $600,000 that they did? Why, why couldn't that be a valid assent? You can consent by conduct, no question. The law is clear on that. The reason that $600,000 deposit doesn't count, Your Honor, is the contract expressly anticipated that would be a due diligence obligation. The contract says that that deposit is going to be made within five days during the due diligence period, which was the 30-day period after the representative signed the contract. Within that 30-day period, by its own terms, Eastwood is not bound. So Eastwood was still free to walk away from the contract, notwithstanding that due diligence obligation. The 600000 I didn't think was, was, was deposited until much later when the deed of trust was filed. Is that correct? The $600,000 was paid, I think, August 27th. But the contract called for that to be done within five days after the effective date, which would have been within the due diligence period. It was actually paid later, you're correct. But the contract called for it to be done as a due diligence cycle. And your client accepted that and kept it and then filed the deed of trust. Is that correct? Correct, which was also anticipated to be a due diligence item. Yes, sir. The deed of trust, mind you, was signed only by Waxhaw. It was not signed by Eastwood. So it did not represent any acknowledgment by Eastwood that there was a contract. Can a party um, make an offer that's open for acceptance until withdrawn? Yes, sir. And um, the duty to communicate the withdrawal or termination of that offer is on the offeror. Is that correct, too? If the offeror chooses to revoke and not make the offer valid anymore, yes, sir. That would have to be communicated. I read in the facts that there was a meeting, subsequent meeting, where uh, your, your client went to the client, the office of the other client, <clears throat> and carried the attorney had prepared a letter of termination and at that meeting is where you were i guess first informed that the contract had been signed is that correct well i think before that meeting our contract had our client had realized it did not have a copy of the signed contract right. it went to the meeting in 2020 and said we don't think we have a contract anymore because it was never signed correct but, but that's when the contract was produced with the signature in a day, correct? I think they produced the actual signature a few weeks later. Right. And the trial court found there wasn't any question in the trial court's mind that the, 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 that was some type of post-dated or post-affixed signature, right? No, sir. The trial court found, you're correct, that the contract had been signed within 30 days. I believe the trial court also found that the first time that signature was communicated to my client was in 2020 and as we've said in our brief we believe that was an unreasonable amount of time to accept i also remember reading that there was uh, significant cost increases that were incurred and that your client had sought some adjustment in the price that's correct and the other party actually agreed to pay an additional million dollars that's correct that was never uh, signed and, and formalized but yes that's correct so it seems to me that, I mean, and did I also understand that both parties were fully represented when this contract was signed? Yes, sir, they were. With, with able counsel? Yes, sir, they were. And they are, there's no allegation of any quality of bargaining power or any overreach here? No, sir. I mean, sir. we're dealing with very sophisticated parties on both sides. Is that so a fair? there's no duress or boilerplate or anything like that, correct? Right. This was a negotiated contract. So I guess... What the difficulty I'm having mm -hmm. is that you, you, you're having two sophisticated parties dealing in good faith, right? Uh, trying to put up a $600,000 deposit. Yes, sir. Willing to pay another million dollars 
above and beyond what the contract called for. And you've got a party that's going to a negotiation with a pre-prepared letter of termination. I mean, it just say, I, I, can you help me with that? Can you help me with, the status of the parties here is very important in, in a course of dealing, is what I'm trying to say. Sure, I understand. So first of all, with respect to the letter of termination, I think what the actual exhibit says is, it's not that we hereby terminate the contract. What the letter said is the contract's already terminated because it was not accepted. Right. Um, I think what you're asking me is reminiscent of an argument I read in the in Eastwood's briefs, which is basically your client was trying to use this termination to extort a higher price, and you were trying to ex exert leverage. And to illustrate why that's not the case, let me let me pose a hypothetical, Judge Tyson, if I may. Let's assume that instead of rising dramatically, prices in Union County for real estate had fallen dramatically between 2018 and 2020, and Eastwood decided it didn't want to be bound anymore. And it had gone to Waxhaw and said, look, I know Mike Conley signed this back in June, and we put up a deposit that was a due diligence item, but we never communicated final acceptance as required. We don't have a deal. Our client would be in a very tough legal position. We might try to fight that, but we'd be in a very tough legal position of coming before this court and saying we had a deal because that was not communicated to us. We would be in the position of the parties in the Elliott case that we cited mm -hmm. and the uh, Horton case that we cited where two parties thought they had a deal, one with Duke University and one with Humble Oil, but they didn't because the other acceptance had never been formally communicated. So I, I say that, Your Honor, because I think part of what's driving this argument that the Eastwood is making is that prices rose. But the reason prices could have fallen and the reason we have such hard and fast rules that demand outward manifestations of acceptance and hard and fast rules for contract formation is so that we don't find ourselves in these positions of trying to figure out whether parties are bound or not. I hope I've answered well, your question. Well, in, in terms of, um, I'm sorry, Judge, um, in terms of the specific performance that's an element of this as well, uh, that's a buyer's remedy, not a seller's remedy, correct? Mm -hmm. So using your hypothetical, if, if prices had fallen, uh, the seller would still have to be satisfied with the value of their property and could not could not, quote, enforce the sale through specific performance either, though. Co correct. That's a buyer's remedy. That is a buyer's remedy. I guess the point I, I want to make is the seller would have had no remedy in that case because there would be no contract. If prices had fallen and acceptance of the contract had never been manifested, which is the fact pattern we have here, then Eastwood would be the one able to say there's no contract. It's only because prices rose we have the shoe on the other foot, and we're now arguing on the basis of uh, our position as opposed to theirs. But the acceptance matters outward manifestation of acceptance matters so that both parties know exactly when they're mutually bound and when those obligations arise. I would think you could say they, when they gave you the $600,000 later that you waived, that they waived any requirement that, that Mr. Stewart or whatever his name was has to sign. I mean, why isn't that an assent? Because again, that's a due diligence item. The contract anticipated that that $600,000 was going to be paid regardless of whether they unqualifiedly accepted or not, regardless. But they would have been entitled to it back if they had not accepted it, would that? Correct. And in fact, when we, when we acknowledged to them later that the contract was terminated, we offered it back. And that was how many years after you say that the contract went away? That was two years because it wasn't... And I so think your client kept this money for two years, put a deed of trust on the property, acted as if this contract was in effect, 
for two years. Is that correct? We actually thought the contract was in effect for two years. Yes, sir. You're exactly right. And you thought the contract was in effect, and only when you look, your client looked to get out of this and was looking for a way to get out of it, they started looking through their files and said, well, we can't find this sign, so we're going to say that and we're going to send the money back. Is that correct? It was definitely two years later. I, I would take issue with some of the statements about only when we were trying to get out of it. I will say this, though, Your Honor. Our motive in that situation is legally irrelevant. Because if the, if the acceptance was not demonstrated, if unqualified acceptance did not exist and was not communicated, whatever the other party's motive is, it doesn't matter because there is no contract. Did, now, did your client act as if there was a contract when they asked to uh, renegotiate the terms of it to ask for another million dollars? The trial court so found, and it's undisputed and cannot be challenged, that there were several times when our client acted as if there were a contract because they were mistaken in thinking there was. But again, a mistake cannot create a contract where no contract exists otherwise. And I want to switch gears here just a moment and sure. give you the opportunity to address, and I know your firm was not the counsel at the trial level or does not, did not appear on the, the documents in which the appellee is now saying that you're changing horses in the middle of the stream because you admitted there was a contract and now you're, you're having a different view of it, and so I want to give you an opportunity to address that argument of theirs as well. You may have been going to address it later. I just want to. Sure, no, I'll address it right now. Yes, sir. You're talking about the swapping horses argument yes. that they make in their brief. They devote a large amount of their time to that. Look, there's no question that in the answer that we filed, and I'm not disavowing trial counsel, it's we, we're all Waxall. In the answer that Waxall filed, they said that the parties agreed to terms of a contract. In the proposed findings of fact to the trial court, after the proceedings were over, but before judgment was entered, they, as proposed findings of fact, they said the parties entered into a contract. But in that same answer, Waxall consistently referred to the contract as an unratified contract, an unaccepted contract. And all throughout trial, at the opening, in the motions in limine, in post-judgment briefs, before the judgment was actually entered, post-trial, not post-judgment, every single time our client talked about this contract, they said that it was unenforceable because unqualified acceptance had not been timely communicated. So on the swapping horses argument, Judge Airwood, whether this contract is unenforceable on day one or whether it's unenforceable on day 31, the end result is the same. It's unenforceable, and the reason for that is the same. It's unenforceable because unqualified acceptance was never communicated. That has consistently been our position from the time we filed the answer and counterclaims until today. There's a theory of contract law that the agreement to a contract is reached upon a meeting of the minds of the parties. Yes, sir. And that a written document is nothing more than a memorialization of an agreement already reached. Yes, sir. Were you familiar with that? Yes, sir. Thought? You can certainly orally agree and then put it in writing, sir. Right. So the agreement was reached when the parties agreed. They can attach stipulations, timing, conditions to that but that does not change the underlying agreement, which is the meeting of the minds. If they actually agreed earlier, certainly, you're right. So the fact that a condition was put upon that, that okay, we've, we've made this agreement and the parties will, will signify their memorialization agreement by a date certain. I wanna make sure I understand your question. Uh, and, and, and if this doesn't answer your question, please ask me to answer it because I don't wanna avoid the question. 
Certainly, Mike Conley of Eastwood signed this document in June of 2018, and certainly the Waxall rep signed it in July. No question about that. Okay. So you had two signatures from Eastwood and Waxall as of July 16th. And that was a thoroughly negotiated council present agreement? Yes, sir. Okay. okay. And, but here's why we know that was not a, the parties did not intend, as a matter of law, as a matter of law, the parties did not intend for that to be a binding obligation of Eastwood because of paragraph two and section 33, which says, notwithstanding anything contained herein to the contrary, this contract shall not be a bind, shall be a binding, valid and enforceable obligation unless and until it's signed by Joe and Clark. So that's not just a condition, that's a statement that's saying, this is not valid and enforceable against Eastwood until one of the Stewart signs it. And to follow up on Judge um, Airwood's comment, that the, the court found that, as a matter of fact, did happen. Yes, sir. The court found, as a matter of fact, that Mr. Stewart signed it on August 10th, and also, as a matter of fact, that that signature was not communicated until July 2020. Okay. So, but but communication is not expressed in paragraph 33. You're exactly right. Communication is not a requirement of the contract. It's a requirement of North Carolina law. The Normeal case, for example, communication must be assented. That's embodied in every contract. Did it so, have to be done, said by August 15th? I'm sorry? Did it have to be communicated by that date, August 15th? I don't, well, the contract doesn't speak to that. The contract. I don't know, what does North Carolina law say? North Carolina law says the contract, the communication must be interpreted, must be made within a reasonable time. So the Mazel case, for example, an old timber case from the 19th century in which a party waited 20 days to communicate acceptance, and the court said that was too long. We've cited Corbin on this point too, Judge Dillon, which basically says- So what do you think a reasonable time is? Within a reasonable time, and what's particularly important here is, it's undisputed that real estate prices were rising in Union County during this two-year period, undisputed. What Corbin says, which is sort of articulates the point of law that North Carolina and other states agree to is, you cannot allow an offeree like Eastwood to wait to accept the contract to see how the market's doing, because that's, these are Corbin's words, not mine. That's like allowing an offeree to bet on a sure thing. So the Mazel case and Corbin both teach that when you have a market that's fluctuating, you have to act promptly and cannot take advantage of the fluctuating markets. So well, in light of current conditions, your client may want to enforce this contract. So well, and look at it the way things are right now. Well, exactly. If the shoe's on the other foot, though, and the prices had dropped, as I said a moment ago, we'd be in a different position. But to answer your question, Judge Dillon, acceptance, does, the contract does not require acceptance to be communicated within 30 days. The law requires it to be communicated within a reasonable time. And what do you think that would be in this case? A week? I don't think you can just say an amount of time. I think you have to say what's not reasonable is if prices have risen and fluctuated, because at that point, you're allowing the offeree to take advantage of the market. So certainly by two years, you had an issue. Was the 600,000 put up before or after the contract was signed? The $600,000 was put up, I believe, in August, late August of 2018. The contract was signed in July. After the fact? Yes, sir. So do people normally send over half a million dollars for something that they're not bound by? Well, they were entitled to get it back, right? It's a deposit. So they really weren't, they weren't putting up any risk because if they had decided not to go through and accept the contract in an unqualified way, they'd just get their money back. Well, had they, uh, I guess, and back to uh, Judge Tyson's question, just to make sure I've got the timeline correct. 
based upon what the trial court found, was the $600,000 tendered after the contract was signed by the party that you say you never heard of, that you never got? I believe, based on the trial court's findings, yes. I think, I think Mr. Stewart signed it on August 10th and the deposit was tendered sometime after. But the contract called for it to be tendered within five days of the first signature. That's why we call it a due diligence item. But it wasn't tendered within five days. It was tendered after the contract was signed by Mr. Stewart. Correct, although not and, and your client never alleged it was a breach for it to not be tendered within the five days, did they? No, sir. I think the undisputed evidence is they reached out within 15 days and said, where's the deposit? And uh, Eastwood said, well, we need a deed of trust, and they were working that out. I don't, there was no breach alleged. You're right. When Waxhaw entered their agreement with Century Communities Southeast in 2021, was any memorandum of that agreement recorded in the Registered Deeds Office? Because I have Connor Act questions. Because yeah. I don't see, because I don't know if there was ever anything besides the deed of trust that was recorded to, to tell the world we got this thing under contract. I, I don't know that there was, Your Honor. I'll confess that that's something I don't know the answer to. Whether a memorandum was filed of the Century deal, I, I don't know that that was the case or not. So that was not decided, in, nor raised or decided in the trial court below? It, I believe the, there was evidence of that contract in the trial court below. But on this particular point, I don't recall. So there was never a counteract issue raised in the, the trial court. I'm there was never a counteract issue raised in the trial court below. A, a counteract? A counteract. Oh, oh no, no, I'm sorry. No, I don't believe. Sorry. <laughs> so there's no issue whether or not Century Communications Communities uh, rights in this is superior to that of Eastwood based on. I, I, I don't believe that's an issue in the case. In the Correct. Of deeds or anything like that. Okay. I don't believe that's an issue in the case. Unless the court has any other questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you. Thank you. May it please the court, uh, your honors, I'm Jimmy Adams from the Brooks Pierce Law Firm, along with my partner, Matt Tynan. We represent Eastwood Construction Partners in this matter. Uh, your honors, this case comes before the court on a question, and I, I think Mr. Cox's argument to you presumes the question as to whether or not a contract was ever formed in the first place. This court should not even take up that issue. Um, the, the parties in this case, and again, Robinson Bradshaw was not involved. Every party in this case from the, from the moment that the case was filed and answered, understood and agreed and admitted that a contract had come into existence and that it had formed. That is clear in the answer and in the counterclaim from the defendants. Thereafter, everything that the defendants did presumed the existence, i.e. the formation, of the contract. And what, what Waxhaw is asking this court to do in this case is to consider for the first time a question that Judge Thornburg was never asked to consider, whether a contract came into existence at all. And so, Your Honors, 
because the, the judicial admission that a contract existed and because the consistent argument below that a contract existed and because Judge Thornburg was never asked to rule on the only question before this court. This court shouldn't even answer that question because it was waived and it's not an issue for this court. Well, but they, the below, they did argue that it was, that what was entered into was not an enforceable contract, did they not? No, Your Honor. What they argued was that the contract existed, came into effect, and then was terminated by its terms. And as a result, they could not be held liable for breach. They used the term void, but they never contended until this, in, ever since March of 21 when they filed their answer, all the way through the end of the case when they proposed their findings of fact, always took the consistent position, a contract was formed and then terminated. But they used the term unratified contract in their counterclaims at least, did they not? They did, Your Honor. All over the place they used the term unratified, but that was shorthand for it terminated by its terms. An example, Your Honor, if the parties had signed a lease and the lease said it was good for two years and a party takes possession of the property, at the end of the two years, according to the terms of the contract, it terminates. That doesn't mean the lease never existed. It just means that it terminated by its terms. Everything that the parties, that defendants said in their answer in counterclaim admitted that the contract existed. And if, Your Honor, if you, first and foremost, and I need to say this because the brief that was filed talked about the Whitaker case or Whiteacre case. I've never been sure how that one's supposed to be pronounced. It's the Supreme Court case, not the Whitaker case. There's two Whitaker cases in the brief. This is the one without the K. So it looks like Whitaker. The movie calls it Whitaker, not Whiteacre. And Judge, that is a judicial estoppel case. And they have cited that numerous places that even quoted it for the standard of judicial estoppel. We have not argued judicial estoppel. We've argued judicial admission. And our court has consistently said that a party is bound by his pleadings unless withdrawn. The answer in counterclaim was never withdrawn. It was never amended. And Your Honor, if you look at what they said in paragraph five, they admitted that on June 2018, Eastwood and Waxhaw agreed to the terms of a contract. That's at page 47 of the record. At page 48 of the record, paragraph 16, pursuant to its express terms, yes, they say the unratified contract was to be in full force and effect for 30 days, but would automatically terminate. Again, by its own terms. It has to exist to terminate by its own terms. They go on in paragraphs 28 and 29 and 30 to talk about it terminated by its terms. It was never reinstated, is paragraph 29, and has not been in effect since August 17, 2018, a month after it was signed. So there's absolutely no dispute that Waxhaw admitted and is bound by the allegation that at a minimum for those 30 days, the contract existed 
which is the exact opposite of what the argument they are making today is. What they are, the argument being made today and in their brief is that the contract never came into existence. That was not the argument in the, that's not what they've said in their answer. It was not the argument below. The argument has always been it came into existence and then it stopped being in existence. It was basically a contract subject to a condition. Yes, Your Honor. That, that's, the, that's the argument, correct? That's exactly, Your Honor. And we didn't put this in the brief. Um, we didn't point to this in particular, but in the record, and I want to show you this, Your Honor, Mr. Tynan's going to, this is page 58 of the record, and it's the prayers for relief in Waxhaw's answer. Is that it? Okay. Number four, that the court award counterclaimants liquidated damages in the amount of $600,000 pursuant to the terms of the contract. They are asking the court enforce the contract and award them $600,000. And in paragraph 10, they ask for their attorney's fees pursuant to the terms of the contract. There is nothing in the answer that ever says a contract was not formed. The 600,000 would be the earnest money deposit, would it not? That's correct, Your Honor. And, and, and it does say pursuant to the terms of the unratified contract. Yes, Your Honor. They said unratified, but unratified was their shorthand for one of the stewards didn't sign, as far as they allege, didn't sign the document. Their allegation- They would have been entitled to that money back no matter what, correct? Well, the way the contract's written, if Eastwood breached, there was conditions under which that earnest money deposit would be forfeited to Waxhaw. There were also conditions under which Eastwood would get the money back if it elected. As a due diligence? It was basically a due diligence deposit? No, Your earnest, Honor. Earnest money deposit, I guess. It was an earnest money deposit, and it was more than just due diligence. The, the, the contract is clear, and, and Mr. Cox didn't mention this. There are two preconditions to paying the $600,000. Number one, the contract in existence. And number two, there has to be a deed of trust recorded. The deed of trust was not signed until after the quote unquote termination date of August the 15th. It was not signed until the latter part of August. And absolutely contemporaneous with the deed of trust being signed, the deposit was made. And so, yes, if everything had potentially gone according to plan, the deed of trust would have been done within that 30 days, but it wasn't. And so Eastwood had no obligation. And that's the fallacy of their argument about the $600,000 not mattering. If they really believed there was no contract, and if Eastwood really believed there was no contract, they would have said, don't send us the money. And Eastwood have said, we're not sending you the money. But Eastwood did. And the facts are clear that that's exactly what happened. And under their theory, Eastwood had no obligation to do so at all, which is just preposterous because the contract called for it. And before I go to the swap and horses argument, let me address the hypothetical that Mr. Cox tendered. He said, well, let's assume prices had gone. He said, well, let's assume prices had gone down. And then two years later, Eastwood says, we don't have a contract. Well, with all due respect to Mr. Cox, that assumes fraud. 
because the trial court found as a matter of fact, and we do not dispute that Mr. Clark Stewart actually signed the contract on August the 10th. And so for his theory, his hypothetical to hold any water, he would have to be saying that Eastwood lied to Waxhaw, lied to the court, and hid the fact that Mr. Stewart signed the document. Under the hypothetical he presented that the price of the real estate goes down, Eastwood is still bound to buy. Now they had one out, the contract provided that if, a due, if the drop dead date of June 30, 2019 was not satisfied, Eastwood had the opportunity to exit the contract. But they also had the right to not exit the contract. And they elected not to. Was this, was this contract a, a take down by lot or was it a lump sum, take it all at one time? It was a, there were three, um, it, it is set up and it's still set up to go down in three takedowns. So there's a, a third comes first and then 90 days later there's the second, third, and then 90 days later after that. There'd be that, lot then. releases for each one of those, yes, right? And the, the way it's set up is the, that $600,000 is credited back to Eastwood on a lot by lot basis. One third, one third, one third. I believe that's your correct, Your Honor. I, I don't recall looking at it the, precisely, but it, it is spelled out in Exhibit C to the contract. What's the status of the properties we sit here today? Uh, Your Honor, I understand it. Well, this is not in the record, but I understand from Mr. Cox as recently as Monday that I believe the final plat has been recorded. Um, all of the approvals are in and I'll let him speak to this, but I believe that they are prepared in position to deliver lots um, whenever this case is resolved to whomever they deliver the lots. To. So any contingencies or conditions have been satisfied as far as getting as far as I am aware, Your Honor. Okay. And I wouldn't say it was a, con the contract required them to do the development in the way they did it. Um, our the only obligation Eastwood has left is to tender a check for the, for the lots. So, just did y'all go through mediation on this? No, Your Honor, we did not. This was a, I believe that you would say this was a uh, casualty of COVID. And uh, neither, neither part of here today was counseled during when the contract was originally negotiated. Is that correct? I know you filed the complaint, correct? Yes, Ron. We filed the complaint. I, uh, the general counsel for Eastwood re represented Eastwood in doing that. I was, our firm was not involved in it. Um, the Fisher Broyles firm represented the defendants to negotiate that. But Judge Tide, I think that goes back to one of the other points is the law, whether it's the Snyder case or the Normill case, says that the parties create a contract when there's a meeting of the minds. And well, I asked I ask that question. Yes, Your Honor. And Judge Thornburg found, as a matter of fact, that all the minds were met in the form of the contract and it was negotiated. If you read the findings of fact, the offer was Waxhaw wanted to sell the property and they had a bid process. And Eastwood, in effect, won the bid. They negotiated the terms of the deal. Then they negotiated the terms of the agreement. The only thing left to do was signatures. And the parties had a specific agreement about how the signatures were going to take place. There was no offer and acceptance going on with Mr. Conley signing or the Waxhaw defendant signing. Offer and acceptance was done, settled. Mutual assent, 
all of the agreements were done. The parties then just said, this is how we're going to go about the process of executing the document. And there is nothing in the agreement, the agreement that Fisher Broyles poured over, and it's in the record, all of the changes they made that required Mr. Stewart's signature to actually be communicated as a condition. The only, com the only condition in the contract was that the um, signature be affixed. And it was two weeks after that that Eastwood paid the deposit, and the, the deed of trust that was negotiated that was signed by the defendants recited there is a contract between Eastwood and Waxhaw. It goes on to recite that the deed of trust secures the $600,000 pursuant to the contract, and that document was placed on the public record. Um, and to add your Connor Act question, um, Judge Dillon, Judge Irwood, we filed a Liz Pendens long before the Century contract was ever even, I believe, even negotiated, certainly before it was signed. So there's, there's no Connor Act issues. Um, because of the Liz pendants. So, Your Honors, if we, we go back to the issue, then if you can get by the judicial admission argument, which we think is where everything stops, to the changing arguments, change, swapping horses in midstream, actually the case that was decided, well, handed down yesterday, the Zane case, and as I recall, Judge Arrowwood, I think you wrote that. Judge Dillon was on the panel. And Judge Dillon was on the panel. The, the court in that case, this court said that the, con the contention argued on appeal must have been raised, argued, and ruled on in the trial court. And the Zane case is dead on point. Because in that case, it was a breach of contract, and there were on appeal, they argued, well, there was a breach of this provision and this provision and this provision and a couple of others. And the court said, you can't just say breach. You have to point to, we, and we filed that as a memorandum yesterday. The court said, yes, the ones that you raised below the breach issues, you can talk about that. You can't raise with us breach issues not raised below. So you can't just say breach a contract and come to the court of appeals and argue whatever breach you want. That's in effect what Waxhaw was doing here. They're saying void and saying that that opens up, I guess, all of Corbin on contracts to argue any argument under which the contract would be void, that that's been preserved. But as the Zane case says and as the other cases we cite, the trial court has to have been given an opportunity to rule on that issue. Did a contract ever get formed? That's the question that they're asking you to look at. And if you look at the defendants' arguments on summary judgment, where they said, we agree there was an executed and binding contract. That's what their counsel said, Mr. Kincaid. In their opening statement, they say the contract became effective as defined in the second paragraph of the contract. They just said in their opening argument that the, that the signatures had the effect of putting the contract in place for a 30-day period. Page 1398 of the, of the uh, document appendix, 
is their post-argument brief, like their closing statement. And as we cited in the Pelk case, closing statements have been relied on by this court in order to say, that's what you argued below, that's what you're stuck with on appeal. At page 1398, the defendant says, plaintiff and defendant entered into a contract, effective July 16, 2018. It can't be any clearer that they took the position that a contract existed. Page 1399, contract between plaintiff and defendants were entered into and made effective. And then if you get to their conclusion, they ask that the court declare the contract terminated pursuant to its terms. Again, presumes the contract existed, but look at the contract, interpret the contract, and say the contract then terminated under the terms of an existing contract. Well, they argued, right, that it also automatically terminated 30 days thereafter. Yes, Your Honor, but it has to have formed in order to terminate under its terms. And that's the question that they have raised on appeal. The only question on appeal is, did the contract ever form in the first place? That's not a question that Judge Thornburg was ever asked to answer. And in fact, they proposed in their findings of fact the exact opposite. In finding number one, and this is at document page 1423, they proposed that Judge Thornburg find plaintiff entered into a written contract with defendants. And then in paragraph 10, pursuant to the contract, defendants agreed to improve and develop the lots into conditions suitable for the construction. It doesn't get any clearer that they absolutely 100% said to Judge Thornburg, find a contract, but then find we're not in breach or find that we're not responsible for performing under the contract. But they never asked Judge Thornburg to find there was no contract ever. And that is the only question in the appellant's brief that this court is asked to answer, is did Judge Thornburg err in finding a contract ever existed, i.e. was formed? This court shouldn't take that issue up. And the only issues that were argued below, the issue of did the failure to provide the signature earlier cause the contract to terminate, or were the conditions of frustration of purpose or impossibility or whatnot, did any of those excuse performance? Those have been abandoned in this court. They have not been argued at all. And so it's an appeal I've never seen before that the only argument presented to this court was never argued below and so is waived. And the only arguments presented to the trial court are not presented to this court and are waived. In effect, this court, as a matter of law, has nothing to do but just say affirmed. Your Honors, the remainder of my argument, I could talk about the burden pallet case and the fact that that's... Let's assume, I want to just assume that the arguments before us, maybe we would say that the contract they're talking about is not a contract to buy lots, but rather a contract to be bound by this contract should 
Mr. Stewart, one of the Mr. Stewart sign it. So I'm just reading this provision. Neither this contract nor any amendment shall be valid and enforceable until. So I'm, I'm just interpreting that term. Would you agree? I mean, would you agree that term, apart from any arguments they might have made below, does that term say that you don't have a valid contract to buy lots until one of the stewards signs? No, or, is you're it just, or is it just that it's not enforceable against the purchasers until they do it? Because it, it doesn't say that you know I'm contract. It just says any obligation that they may have is not enforceable or valid until it's signed by Stewart and Stewart. Yes, sir. I think you have to read the contract as a whole, and I would note that as we pointed out in our brief, Waxall didn't point to paragraph 33 with respect to any of their arguments other than one passing reference that goes back to the, but if you read the contract as a whole you go back to the first page where it says that the contract will be in full force and effect for 30 days but will automatically terminate if the signature of Joe Stewart or Clark Stewart is not affixed within 30 days of the effective date that's basically restating the same thing as paragraph 33 but the contract when read as a whole confirms that the parties had an agreement and the negotiation between Mr. Nason and Mr. Durrett from Fisher Broyles didn't require communication and the court found as a matter of fact that Mr. Stewart signed within the 30-day period and so the signature issue is pretty academic it, it, because it was all satisfied. If Mr. Stewart had, had not signed the contract, we'd be making different arguments. We'd be arguing 100% um, that it was waived. But Judge Thornburg found a couple of things, Your Honor, that he found that the paragraph 33 was a provision entered in, in the contract for the benefit of Eastwood and that Eastwood, to the extent necessary, waived the provision. And so the, the factual findings which are binding on the court are that paragraph 33 has no impact on the case because it was for Eastwood's benefit, Eastwood complied, but to the extent there was a communication requirement, Eastwood waived that requirement because it was for its benefit. Now, the defendants have tried to say, oh, well, th that means that we get to uh, cancel the contract, but the only thing in the negotiation between the parties was that the signature be affixed. There's no requirement in the contract that the signature be communicated. Was there a prior course of dealing or a prior business relationship between the parties? No, Your Honor. And I, I believe, I'm pretty sure the testimony is this was the only um, real estate that at least one of the defendants has ever had in North Carolina. I think, Ms. I think the Waxhaw developers, that it, those two entities have never had any dealings. I think the owner of Waxhaw developers had done some prior things in North Carolina, but not with Eastwood. So there was no prior course of dealing. But I think the other thing to, to mention, Your Honors, is that there, and Judge Thornburg found this, every time, every opportunity that Eastwood had to respond to inquiries about Waxhaw, 
they were 100% consistent. Contract exists and it's in place. They, ex of course, they paid the $600,000, but Waxhaw was in the process of trying to get a loan for its, to do the development work. And these documents are in the record. The bank, like a lot of banks in a real estate transaction, wanted an assignment of Eastwood's contract for purposes of being able to secure their rights. You know, so if Waxhaw defaults, the bank could step in and still point to Eastwood, you're still the party responsible for paying this loan off because you're supposed to buy these lots once we get them ready. And so Waxhaw communicated to the bank, there's a contract, sent Eastwood uh, an amendment to allow the assignment of the contract. Eastwood was willing and ready to sign it. Now, Waxhaw backed off their relationship with the bank for various reasons that are not relevant, but at every point in time, Eastwood communicated, yes, we have a contract. There was the issue of what are we, what are we allowed to do for the $600,000? And this goes back to the question of the bank. Waxhaw, and the, the testimony of this is in the record, Waxhaw wanted to be able to use the 600000 and claim that was equity for purposes of showing the bank that there was equity in the property. And they had some concerns about that, and that's what created the back and forth about potentially amending the contract, which resulted in Mr. Nason, the general counsel of East, would say, no, you can use the money however you want to under the contract. Judge Tyson, you look like you're about to ask something. I don't want to. No, I'm just listening. Okay. <laughs> I was just trying to follow your train of thought. So basically, the the six hundred thousand was not totally escrowed. Was it available for the parties? Oh, absolutely, Your Honor. It, they, Waxhaw could have used that money anytime it wanted to for any purpose and any reason, and that's what the that's what the record shows. They did not. I mean, to be clear, they segregated the six hundred thousand. That's what the record shows, and as far as I and they still have the six hundred thousand by here five years later. Um, but at every point along the way, Eastwood communicated its assent to the terms of the contract, communicated its performance of the terms of the contract, and communicated that it was ready, willing, and able to perform. And I think one of the things that's even, it's not in the briefing, but it's in the, it's in the record, is prior to the drop dead date, and the, the defendants makes a lot of this say, well, Eastwood didn't, you know, didn't insist on that drop dead date. Well, they had the right to not insist. What's not in the briefing, but it's in the record, and the contract is clear on this. Eastwood was allowed up until June 30, 2019, to say, we're done because you didn't deliver. But once June 30 passed, the contract said Eastwood, and this goes back to something you noted earlier, Judge Tyson, Eastwood was bound to buy at least the first um, takedown of the lots. The contract was specifically negotiated that that first takedown was a specific performance takedown. Now, they could then not buy second and third, and there are other contract remedies for that. But by letting that one opportunity go, not only did Eastwood show that they were continued to work with Waxhaw, but they, by that point, were bound to spend the money to buy the first set of lots. So, Your Honors, I'm about out of time. Um, we would just encourage Your Honors to, whether it's on the issue of 
judicial admission, whether it's on the issue of waiver of the arguments below, or whether it's just on exactly what Judge Thornburg found. The parties had a contract. All of the conditions preceded and subsequent were satisfied. It was final, binding. It was never void. Judge Thornburg found properly that Waxhaw breached the contract by refusing to sell the lots and entered an order of specific performance. That order should be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honors. When I started my presentation, I acknowledged to the court that at the trial level in the answer and counterclaims and in the proposed findings of fact after trial but before judgment, there were statements made by Waxhaw that a contract had been entered into and that a contract had been agreed to. And that was the focus of Mr. Adams' presentation. That's the focus of their briefs. As I believe Judge Arrowwood pointed out, every time we said that at the trial level, starting with our answer and counterclaims, we also said the contract was unratified. It was unaccepted. Communication was not made to us. Well, my question, and I do have a question looking at your pleadings below. If it was an unratified contract, how were you entitled to keep the $600,000 that you pled in your counterclaim that you were entitled to keep? I believe, Your Honor, what they ultimately pled in the, they pled an alternative claim for relief. So I say they, us. Waxhaw below said, to the extent the court finds that a contract still is in effect as an alternative pleading, we'd like you to grant us this relief. So a moment ago when they were showing a prayer for relief on the screen, we did seek some affirmative claims based in contract, but we specifically said that was an alternative claim for relief if the court found that the contract existed. But our position was consistent that it did not exist. As of August 15th, it said the pleadings, it did not exist because unqualified acceptance was never communicated. The Whitaker case, or however we pronounce it. You got it right. The Supreme Court in 2004 said very clearly, there is not a judicial admission of law. There are judicial admissions of fact. And this very case illustrates the wisdom of that decision because the Supreme Court said parties have to be free to make alternative theories and arguments of law. And so our judicial admission, judicial estoppel doctrine applies only to facts, not law. If you look at the cases they cite from this court that talks about judicial admission, if you go one level down, the admissions made in those cases are actually admissions of fact concerning signatures and the like. There's no dispute of fact here. The only question is, as a matter of law, was an unqualified acceptance given? Let's assume for a moment that Mr. Adams is right and that the trial court was right as a matter of law when it said a contract was formed on July 15th, 2018. As Mr. Adams said, I think, a moment ago, the second paragraph of this contract and Section 33 are in tandem. They express the same point. And Section 33 says, notwithstanding anything to the contrary, anything to the contrary, this agreement shall not be a valid and enforceable obligation of Eastwood until a steward signs it. So even if you assume that there's some meeting of the minds at some level, at some preliminary provisional level, there is no other way as a matter of law to read that Section 33 than to say Eastwood is reserving its acceptance. It's holding back until Mr. Stewart signs. And under the Yeager case, 
and the Z case and a number of other cases, if a party is reserving its rights, if it's holding back acceptance, there is no enduring contract. So even if you assume there was a contract on day one, by day 31, when Mr. Stewart did not sign, it was clear there was no unqualified acceptance, and that, as a matter of law, is an element of every contract and must be communicated. Mr. Adams is correct. The contract did not require Mr. Stewart's unqualified acceptance to be communicated. He's right about that. But the law did. Normeal did and others. Let me address two more points real quick. Let me, before you leave that sure. point, let me just say this. Um, this trial court found that it was signed and the $600,000 was sent after the signature. Wasn't there some duty on your client at that point once you get a $600,000 check in, you start doing a deed of trust, say, okay, where's the contract? There may be a duty as a matter of business ethics or just practical good business judgment. I'm not going to disagree with you on that, Your Honor. But the duty to communicate unqualified acceptance is the offerees, not the offerors. Well, when they sent you the $600,000 after the date, wasn't that an, a communication to you that the contract was in effect? No, sir, I don't believe it was. It was just a communication that a due diligence item that was required by the contract was being tendered. But they this were was after the signature. Everyone admits that this was after the signature would have had to have been affixed in order that they sent it after the, the date. Did, that, okay. is, that is correct. You're right about that. So what, so what due diligence obligation would there have been if there was no contract? You said it was an obligation under the contract, but there is no. Your argument now is there is no contract as of August 15th. Correct. Let, let me say it this way. Whether they were going to give us their unqualified acceptance or not. So unqualified acceptance is a requirement to an enduring enforceable contract. Whether or not they planned to give us that unqualified acceptance or not, they had to tender the $600,000. If they ultimately decided we're not communicating unqualified acceptance, there is no contract, they get that money back. Which is why when we finally discovered, two years later, I, I'm with you, Judge Airhorse, when we finally discovered two years later that we did not have their signature, and, communication and acceptance had not been communicated, we offered that money back because they owe it up front even before they decide on unqualified acceptance. And if they ultimately do not unqualifiedly accept, they get the money back. But your argument there is they, they owed it before the, 30, before the 30 days expired. They sent it after the 30 days expired. I'm not following you how that's not evidence of acceptance if they sent it after the 30 days it expired and, and they sent you the money. And, I, I, and you kept the money. We kept the money and then offered to return it. You're right about that. And my response to that would be, again, it's called to be tendered within the due diligence period before unqualified acceptance is passed. So if the shoe were on the other foot and they said, wait a minute, and we said, you're bound by this contract because you gave us $600,000, they would be entitled to say, no, we had that obligation whether we unqualifiedly accepted or not. That was just a due diligence item. But if they sent it after the due diligence period was over, then how could they have that argument? Is my, that's, that's where I'm having problems Understood. with your argument. Understood. But I think given the, un, the unambiguous language of this contract that calls for it to be a due diligence item, they would have that argument, whether they would prevail or not. But I believe they would have that argument. Let me address two more issues really quick, if I may. Um, so one is the Zhang argument, if I'm pronouncing that correct, the, the argument, the opinion that was handed down yesterday. In that case, the plaintiff said, look, you breached a contract by not conveying property to me. And then when they got to this court, they said, and you didn't indemnify us, and you didn't disclose some things, and you didn't designate a lien agent. 
and this court said you can't bring entirely new contract provisions to play when you didn't argue to the trial court. All along to the trial court in this case, we have said unqualified acceptance was not communicated under paragraph two and section 33, which are in harness. So we are not bringing new substantive provisions to this court that were not discussed below. We're bringing the same provisions that were exhaustively discussed below and that mean there was no unqualified acceptance. And one final point, I believe Mr. Adams said it would be fraud if they had tried to say there is no contract. That's not the case. Look at the Norcunas case that we cited from Maryland, which is of a piece with the Romeo case in this court. In that case, the seller of some property signed some, uh, an agreement in the privacy of her own home, and the buyer said, well, we have a deal, and she said, no, we don't, because that acceptance was never communicated. It wasn't fraud. She just never communicated the acceptance, Let and as a matter of law. Did your client have backed out on August 9th? I'm sorry? Did your client have backed out of this contract on August 9th? Uh, I do not believe so, no. So there was a contract. Before, before the steward signed it, so, so you did, there was a contract, y'all were, were bound. No, there was an unqualified offer from us. Well, if it's August. an offer, you can back out of it before it's accepted, but you just said just now that you couldn't have backed out of we it. We could not have backed away from our unqualified offer where we said we were giving them 30 days to ratify it. I don't think we could have done that. I think they would have been able to say something about that point. But once that 30 days passes, then we're if free. If I tell you right now, I'll give you 30 days to buy my car for 50 bucks, and you don't say anything, I can come back tomorrow and say, forget it. Correct. You can revoke any time. So, so so, but, but, but you couldn't revoke. You, had to, you, you were bound by that July 15th. I think under the language of this contract, the way this provision reads with Section 2 and Section 33, that we're saying we're committing to this deal, and you have 30 days to unqualifiedly accept it, which they didn't do. So it's not like a, a bare naked offer. It's an offer within the context of a deal that says we have these agreements as sort of a So there deal. are agreements. There was, there was something binding about the July 15th. There was a binding offer on our part. We demonstrated an unqualified offer to them. They demonstrated through Mr. Conley what I'll call a provisional offer. That's what the court found that there was a contract. But so long as they're reserving acceptance to themselves, it's not a fully enforceable contract that endures past August 15th. That would be our position. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor.